Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. I've long been convinced that future historians will look upon our time as the dawn of the golden age of neuroscience. And perhaps nobody better encapsulates this notion than Duke University neuroscientist Miguel Nicolelis. In a series of stunning experiments, he explicitly demonstrated how a monkey in North Carolina could control the movements of a robot in Japan just by thinking, going a considerable distance towards laying the groundwork for a spectrum of brain-machine interfaces that will transform the lives of those who are presently unable to use their limbs. But as remarkable as that accomplishment surely is, in Miguel's view, perhaps an even more important aspect of his work is how it helps to revolutionize our fundamental understanding of what the brain is and how it works, thereby setting the stage for even more pioneering discoveries in the years to come. Let me start with rats, mm-hmm. um, because that seems to be where it started with, uh, with, with you in the book in terms of your research, not your own research uh, per se necessarily, but when you're describing some of the major experimental work that happened. Um, so tell me about that, and tell me, tell me about uh, your first work that started with, is John Chapin? Is that, yes. is that, is that who it was? Yes. Back at John Hopkins, right? Yes. So, in no, in, uh, in Philadelphia. In, was uh, it in Philadelphia? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Honeyman, Honeyman University. Right, right. Yes. Sorry. So I was close. I got the name close, right, anyway. yes. Yeah, it was, it's true. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I actually, very few people know, and that's one of the reasons I, I wrote that in the book, that this whole field of brain-machine interfaces actually started with these experiments in rodents. Right. And, and what well, John and I, it was very funny that we met because uh, John was here in Philadelphia looking for a postdoc. I was graduating in Brazil at the University of Sao Paulo. Right. And we both had the same idea independently of what we wanted to do for the future. Hmm. And I remember he put an ad in science that was not supposed to be answered because it was one of these ads that... Oh, because he had someone in mind. He had someone in mind already, but you need to put the ad to, to, to justify hiring this person. And right. And I answer it, and right. I answer what a it. for him. Yeah, exactly, for the guy, for the <laughs> yeah. other guy. Lately, he got hired anyway, but uh, I answer, and John just called me, and, and you know, in the late 80s, it was very rare to get an international phone call in Brazil, and particularly at the university. It was right. not common in Brazil, so I got this phone call, and I barely could speak any English, and, and John was all excited on the phone saying that, and I should come to Philadelphia for an interview, because what I wrote to him exactly what he was thinking about. Wow. And it was this idea of recording from lar- large numbers of neurons, many neurons, right. uh, simultaneously. Because right. until then, the, the dogma was that you, know, you could just record one at a time, right. one cell at a time out of uh, billions of neurons in the brain, and you would find the answers. And both of us, for different reasons, is that's the very peculiar and very funny aspect of it. We came to the same conclusion from very different directions. Uh, wanted to look at what a population of neurons, you know, right. uh, does when it fires together. Right. So John had started as a graduate student and then as a postdoc and pursuing that, and he was a he is a uh, electronics genius, and he was building his own system. 
And I was doing something different, but I, I really wanted to, you know, devote my entire career to that. I knew since I was a graduate student, a medical student, actually. So I got, we got together and we started developing this technique to record from multiple uh, cells, brain cells simultaneously, and the red model was perfect, and particularly the, the, whisker. the whisker model, right. because there was uh, a lot of information, anatomical and some physiology done in anesthetized animals, but there was this suggestion that you had these maps, these precise maps of the facial whiskers of the rat right. uh, at different levels of the brain, and that in these maps, each whisker was represented very clearly by a cluster of cells. Right, there's a one-to-one -one map in the, the yeah. regions to the actual neurons. Exactly. It's a one-to-one mapping, uh, isomorphic map, right. we say, right. of the, whisk, the distribution of the, the rows and columns of whiskers in the face right. into a two-dimensional or three-dimensional map right. at each level of the uh, trigeminal pathway, the pathway that conveys tactile information from the, from the face all the way to the, to the cortex. So this is the way, just, just to back up, so if I don't know anything about rats, and now, like, since I've read your book, I'm a rat expert, yes. but, but before that I knew absolutely nothing other than um, it was best to get out of the way when you, when you saw one of them. Yes. <laughs> um, so they, they use these whiskers to, to be able to detect all sorts of things, right? Yes. So they, they use them as, as a sensory device to get a sense of where to go and how to, whether an opening is large enough, whether an opening yeah, is small enough. Yeah, it's like their enough. fingertips. Right. And, and, and you mentioned something before about being anesthetized, because uh, one of the interesting things that, that, that I learned from your book is, is that previously, until, or, or maybe not all the time, but previously, um, when people were actually trying to study uh, neural behavior, neural pathways, uh, and signals, the actual subject was anesthetized. There wasn't this idea of having a live subject that yes. was there. Yeah, most of what we know about, you know, in the beginning, you know, in the, in the 50s and 60s, uh, was done in anesthetized preparations to study sensory systems like the visual system, the tactile system, right. the auditory system. Right. Uh, in the mid-60s, uh, mid uh, a guy in, uh, at NIH, Edward Everts, created a preparation to record from individual neurons in awake uh, behaving monkeys. Okay. And that was a big right. revolution, but right. it was still one neuron at the time. Right. You know, and, and, and people do it to this day. That, right. that preparation has survived six decades. You right. know, it's a very useful preparation. But what we wanted is to know, since you have these neurons at each different levels that represent the same whisker, how they, they fire, how they right. respond to a tactile uh, mechanical stimulation of the whiskers uh, in a awake behaving rat. So you're able to put electrodes yeah. In, in the rat's brain, yes. and you were able to measure these things. And you, 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 you mentioned how you, you, I think I've got this right, but you mentioned you were actually inspired by, by Joe Silk's book, right? Yes. Of, yeah. of distributions of, of, of putting these things yeah. uh, to, to, measure, uh, to measure in a distributed way the actual signal, the electromagnetic. Yeah. So you put, them, you put them somewhere all around the brain or something. Yeah, like I, was, I was since very early on fascinated by astronomy. Right. And uh, during medical school, I read this book about how did they linked radio telescopes in England, in Cambridge, to, right. to measure radio uh, signals coming from sectors of the, of the universe. Right. So it's a form of interferometry, basically, yeah. right, that, that we're talking yes. about. Yes, but, but of course we couldn't mimic the entire uh, sure. system, but the logic was very similar. Right. So I wanted to see how different sources, you know, neurons, they are part of a circuit, interact when they're working together to uh, underlie some perceptual capability, in this case, you know, tactile. 
And, uh, you know, rats love to use their whiskers to judge openings in, in, in the wall or in, right. and to, to see if they can run through it. Right. You know, and that's the reason I like to compare to the fingertips. Right. So, so this was what you, you suggested to John Chapman. Was it this, this yeah. idea of these distributed, putting these guys all over the place, being able to measure yes. the signals in real time uh, or close to real time? And, and while, this, while this thing is, sorry, this rat, this rat. Thing, thing is yes. maybe a technical term. Yes. I don't know, you're the expert. But <laughs> uh -huh. While this rat is actually uh, awake, sentient, being able to respond to all these things so that you can actually yes. measure the signals. Yeah, so and it, was this. it was this. It was this thing. And the key aspect there was to record from multiple structures simultaneously, which remains one of the key features of our laboratory to this day. Right. You know, 25 years later, uh, we introduced this, this approach of looking at multiple structures simultaneously and lots of neurons in each structure at right. the same time. Right. So we started, I remember, uh, in fact, I think I mentioned in the book, the first night we record 26 neurons simultaneously. And uh, for us, that was out of the universe because people were recording one. Right. And 25 years later, we were recording 2,000 neurons simultaneously. Wow. So, and I have a plot now of how this progressed over time. Yeah. So it's growing. It's, it's really exploding right. because of technological advances. Sure. But sure. The idea was to test a theory that was out there that right. seemed very logical, very clear, that each neuron in each uh, cluster of neurons that represent a particular whisker in these maps right. at different levels respond only to that whisker. Right. That's the reason we, I suggested to John that we put these electrodes all over, and he thought it was a great idea with a, to validate the technique, to you right. know, support a result that was pretty much accepted and expected in anesthetized preparations. Right. But the moment we did that, and even before we got these animals to actually do complex things with their whiskers, just letting the animal be awake and touching individual whiskers showed to us that the story was much more complicated. Okay. In fact, each neuron in one of these clusters responded to many whiskers, right. not only the, the principal whisker that it was supposed to represent. Okay. So, so for, for my layman's perspective, uh, let me see if I summarize. Tell me, tell me if yes. I'm uh, doing, a, doing a good job or a bad job. So the idea is that previously the common wisdom is that, um, that you have a one-to-one -one map, these bundle maps or funnel maps, I can't remember what you call them, but anyway, the, the, these maps between... Oh, uh, one maps yeah. between Right, right. Uh, between uh, one whisker to a particular bunch of neurons somewhere, another yes. whisker to another particular bunch yes. of neurons somewhere. And that had been fairly well established through experiments done with anesthetized rats when they were actually doing something. Yes, with those. in the anatomy, in the anatomy right. of the system, yes. Right. And then you say, well, okay, that's all well and good, but uh, the brain may work very differently when it's anesthetized as opposed to when it's not anesthetized, and, and there might, might be an awful lot more activity that's going on. I have this belief, and I want to get to that in a little bit more detail later on about the distributed versus yes. the localized. But I have this belief that it's not just these one-to-one -one maps, that it's much more complicated than that, and there's a distribution of clusters of these things in different places. So let's see if we can use some interesting technology and put electrodes in uh, around uh, in different places uh, and measure what actually happens when we, uh, when we go forwards with uh, touching these whiskers of, of the yes. rats and so forth. And, and what happened and what did you find? Well, we f one of the things we found was that the thing was much more dynamic. Right. So the, the, even the clusters that were supposed to represent just one whisker, even uh, lower levels of the pathway, respond to many other whiskers. Right. And they were influenced by a lot of factors. And that it took us 10 years to, to actually get to, you know, I, I had to move here to Duke and develop a, a complete new task, behavior task, to get these uh, animals to 
use their whiskers more normally, more in a more ethological way, and to see the, uh, the context of having the animal actually do something, change the way the neurons responded to, to the stimulation that was provided. In fact, we just published a paper recently yeah. showing that the neurons are firing way before the whiskers touch anything. It's almost like the brain is preparing itself yeah. to detect. It has an expectation of what is about to happen. And this was not so what accepted was at all in, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, you know, because the system was believed to, to behave just, just as a response mechanism. A response mechanism, right. a feed-forward mechanism. Right. So you touch something, and then there's a volley of activity that right. covers the whole brain. Right. And what we are showing now is that there is a huge wave of activity coming from the top down, preparing the brain for what is about to happen. So right. the brain is always expecting something in the future. So when we saw that, uh, and we start recording, like, let's say, 50 neurons simultaneously, right. we start feeding in real time, or quasi real time, the, the activity of these 50 neurons to pattern recognition algorithms, computation algorithms, to see if we could infer uh, by the pattern of firing what was the diameter of a, of a hole right. that we created for the animals to touch and to inform us right. if it was big enough for the animal to the go through or event. not. Yes. And we discovered in the mid-90s that we actually could predict, trial by trial, what was this diameter, as well as the animal's behavior, which about 15 neurons, which didn't make any sense, because why would you have millions of cells in there, you know, if we 50... Sure, it's so a lot of redundancy. It's a lot of redundancy, <laughs> exactly. It was at that point, when I, I had left uh, Honeyman, I was here at Duke already for about five years or so, that John and I said, well, we need, to, we need a new preparation to, to test this, this idea, the, because it looked like you, you, you were visualizing a voting mechanism, like the neurons are voting. An ensemble a, of neurons all, yeah, over the, all over the place. A population of neurons right. is voting at, at each moment in time, and the, right. the real outcome depends on this voting. It doesn't depend on a specific class of cells right. or a cluster of neurons. It depends on this, what we call distributed. Right. representation. So, so that's very different than this one-to-one, -one it's a completely different... It's 180 degrees apart, right. you know. So, so you came up with these results, and these results are... Uh, I wanted to ask you about how difficult it was actually to, to probe the rats, because it sounds very easy, you know. Oh, no, no, uh, we, we had... Hit a, hit, a, hit a whisker here, <laughs> hit a whisker there. Presumably that's actually... Very tough. Very <laughs> yeah, we had to design all sorts of tricks to do that. I, my, my entire postdoc, I was doing that. I didn't wear glasses before I became a postdoc. <laughs> and by the end of four years, I needed glasses because my eyes are going bad. Right. Just by doing this every day for hours and hours. Did you have favorite rats, by the way? Did you have? Oh, you, well, you always have. You yeah. know, you always. But I, I, in fact, I had a study that was I couldn't publish like that, but I published. But I have a group of rats named after uh, German opera characters, <laughs> and a group of rats named after Italian opera characters. Well, could you could you compare? Was there a competition involved? Uh, no, no, no. It was just for fun. <laughs> and, but the German group behaved much better, well, much more, more consistent. Yeah. yeah, more rigorous, exactly. <laughs> uh, so for my Italian friends, that was a big disappointment. But, but uh, no, we had a, groups of animals that actually were the first ones to be implanted with these sensors in multiple locations of the brain. Right. So when, when we published this paper, it was a big paper um, in 94, 95, uh, it was a shock. Because nobody was expecting, nobody yeah. was expecting that to come, right. and and it was very difficult. Uh, it was published in Science, and today it has five hundred citations. But uh, but at the time, at the time, it was very difficult to to penetrate. And part of this is because we are using a sensory system, a tactile system. Your animals cannot report what they're feeling, 
So people say, okay, you found this neurophysiological evidence, but what does that mean in terms of the animal experience? How, how is that, uh, how can you predict the animal's behavior if you cannot get a real quantitative measurement besides number of trials correct? So you cannot interrogate your rats, basically. Sure, but um, it was confusing to me because the story that, that I remember you, you telling in the book was there is this uh, very, very strong evidence for this distributive yes. model. Uh, which goes against the, the, the prevailing dogma that, that happened before then. Yeah. And it wasn't terribly well received. There was a lot of skepticism, oh, yes. which led you, in fact, to move to the next level that we're going to talk yes, about. Yes, but in, it's in exactly that. But, but as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, why, why is it not very well received? I mean, there's, okay, there's academics that, that are holed up in their own particular beliefs, uh, just like everyone else. We've all yes. been through that. We understand that. But it seems like it's a fairly compelling... Uh, set of experiments that you're, yes. you're doing to support this model. So if I'm someone who's one-to-one -one map, uh, isolated, uh, what is this, barrel? What? Barrel, yes. I'm sorry, I keep, I keep getting it wrong. Yeah. But anyway, the, the one whisker, one group of neurons, and then somebody comes and shows me some fairly significant evidence that, that, uh, that argues for the distributive model. What can I say to that? I mean, the, the idea that we don't know what the rat is feeling seems like it, it's not yeah, terribly relevant. Oh, we've heard all sorts of things because, you know, you have to realize this is not physics. Sure. The, the physics community is much more open to breaking dogmas, <laughs> I think, from my little experience with okay. physicists. All right. in biology is, is pretty difficult because there's a lot of vested interests in this model. Right. This model, in general sense, had, you know, awarded a couple Nobel prizes. And it was difficult, it was very difficult. But were people giving you any, any clear feedback in terms of you didn't do the experiment correctly? No, not or so much so that the papers were being accepted in big journals, right. you know, very big journals, Nature Science, Journal Neuroscience, all the neuron, all the big journals of the field. It's just that people were not accepting it. They, okay. are, they were very afraid of a new technology, a new way to look at the data. We, we are doing statistics for the first time in, in neuronal responses because sure. we could get hundreds of sure, trials. Sure, have to, yeah. yeah. But for the first time, you have to realize, until that paper, in a, the first big paper in 94, where I opened up this with John, uh, people were doing 10 trials, 50 trials per whisker, because they couldn't hold the cell too long. Right. So they had to hurry. Right. Well, since we could ha hold the cells for days, we were doing 500 trials. So we decided to uh, gather statistics on 360 trials. I remember that very vividly. One of our reviewers said, why so many trials? Well, I said, well, because we need to, yeah. to do statistics. And, and why not? I mean, the more you have... Of course. Yes, but I'm telling you, there was not okay. a great tradition of quantification and statistics. I and, see. And it was a model that at that time, uh, a few theoreticians uh, love it because that's what they had predicted. Sure. Sure. But the experimentalists had a lot of difficulty in accepting it in that particular field. So here and, comes Nicolaitis and Chapin with their fancy mathematical models that we can't really understand yeah. or whatever it is. And it was done in rat. So the monkey community, that's another, at that time there was a lot of uh, almost, uh, I don't know, hubris actually from the people working primates that even though you find these things in rats, not necessarily they apply to... Oh really, there's all, this hierarchy that there goes... Was, goes uh, there was a big deal when I was a postdoc, this was a real, and I had several very famous monkey physiologists coming to me in, in meetings at posters or in my talks, oh, this is very nice, but this is just rodents, you know, you, you, do, or you have no evidence in, in monkeys. Okay? So, so here's the segue, that, so, so you say, so you're faced with this, so you decide... Yeah. Well, we decided to go to a, just a, as a, John and I joke, we just move a couple millimeters ahead to the motor cortex. There was a, right there, and that's another thing you have to realize, until very recently, people that work in the motor cortex, right 
didn't talk to people that work on the tactile cortex. It's just a few millimeters apart in the, in the monkey brain. It was like divided in two different sociologically separate groups, right. you know? So that was already almost a, a, a no-no, a big booboo for tactile people to cross the central sulcus and start recording, you know, <laughs> right in front of it. But John and I, we always liked that, those adventures, and so we went and started doing that. Right. And that's when the brain machine paradigm that you hear now, that lots of laboratories are using now, uh, was born. Uh, there had been some experiments by you know, a phenomenal neuroscientist, uh, uh, Ed Fetz, that I describe in the book. Mm -hmm. In the 60s, they were somewhat similar. He was trying to look at how he could condition individual neurons with feedback. But what we proposed was very different. We, we wanted a quantitative way to demonstrate that distributed coding is the way to uh, represent uh, motor information to generate uh, motor behaviors. So what did you do, and what happened? So you have to realize, this is 96. There are only a handful, probably three labs in the world that can do multi-electro recordings at that time, simultaneously. Only our lab is doing uh, multi-sites. So we said, okay, let's, instead of just collect this data and offline analyze this, right. let's use this little experiment that we just finished with the rats as our new paradigm. Let's do a real-time analysis right. and test the main predictions of the distributed coding theory by seeing whether an animal can use its brain activity alone to make an artificial actuator reproduce the kind of movement the animal has to perform to perform a task and get a reward as an as a exchange. Right. And that, at that point, nobody was talking about it. There was you know, very little uh, discussion about the possibility of that. And I remember that and I was here. I was starting to record from monkeys. Mm -hmm. I had just published a paper with multiple sites in monkeys. Mm -hmm. And we agreed that we should do first a rat study to see if it was viable, you right. know, because, of course, you can test ideas in rats. But at the same time that we were seeing that the rat work was moving, I started with the monkeys here. Uh, and so we published one paper after another. We published the red paper in 99. Right. And seven months later, in 2000, we published a nature paper. Wow. You know, but the funny part is the first paper in rats we sent to the big journals, Nature, Science, right. and they all rejected without any justification. Uh, so we sent it to a new journal at the time called Nature Neuroscience, which is a very prestigious now, journal. Now, now, yeah. now it's very prestigious, right. but it was starting at that time. Right. And actually, after the, uh, I will tell you later, but over the years, I have done that many times. I have these papers that uh, the big journals look and say, oh, I don't want it. So I send it to a, a, a startup. And all of a sudden, they have lots of citations 10 years later. Right. You know. But we sent it there. It was accepted. It was a big shock because these rats were using their brain activity to uh, make a one-dimensional lever uh, be moved, a little robotic uh, arm to collect water right. in a water dripping and bring the water to them so they could uh, drink. So, so, so just again, to slow it down for someone who hasn't read the book yes, and, and doesn't necessarily have a scientific background, you're able to actually monitor, you're able to train the rats so that they can yes. think about, uh, uh, about which, which lever or which side. No, it's very simple. No, it's very, it's okay. much simpler than that. Uh, the rat is implanted, right. but he's trained to bar press to get water. Right. So if you bar press, a little arm, a one-dimensional arm collects water in a dripping uh, source and brings the water to his mouth. Right. So the arm is doing this. Right. So we're recording at that time 46 neurons in the motor cortex of this rat. And we use a very simple algorithm 
to actually transform these electrical signals into an output that would make this one-dimensional movement uh, be generated by the robot without the need of the animal to bypass. Right. And the most astounding finding of that study that for all of us, inclu you know, including us who did it, was that in, the, in certain periods the animal would get it and it stopped moving the, the forepaw and get the arm to go there, collect, stop, collect right. the water and come back so he, the animal could drink it. Right. And this was, you know, periods of time, a few minutes, that the animal would be able to do that, and then he would try to bar press, but the, the lever at that point was disconnected from right, the robot. Right, right. So some people, we publish, and some people say, no, oh, this is funny. I mean, it's just a few seconds, a few minutes of, at the time that the animal stops moving. Maybe it's not working the way you, you suggest. There's something else going on or yeah, something. Yeah, well, we suggest that the animal was actually somehow learning right. that he could right. rely on, just on, a, on his, just on, on his thinking. Yeah. Well, he didn't know there was his, his thinking, but he could rely on something, a, not right. motor, not motor behavior, right. because the muscles did went quiet. For right. Him. Well, I was doing the monkey work in parallel, and a year later we published, and we saw that the monkey stopped moving. So we saw that first with our monkeys. It was a small species of New World monkeys that I was very familiar because of my previous work in Brazil. Right. Uh, and then we heard people say, oh, this is not a monkey, this is a new world monkey. Of course it's a monkey, it's a primate, but that's to give you how complicated this thing is. So we moved to bigger primates, rhesus monkeys, right. all in parallel. And so these papers came staggered, you know, one after another. And when we got to the rhesus monkey, we were already using a seven degree of freedom, that was 2003. Right. Uh, a seven degree of freedom for reaching and grasping, right. one dimensional grasping and six degrees of freedom to reach. And we have movies and documented totally that the animal would get it and stop moving and play the game they were supposed to play using brain activity to move this uh, arm to control a little computer cursor that gets to targets. Right. And, and that, that was then when everything exploded. And of course, you know? now you're dealing with primates, you're dealing with a higher level of intelligence, you're dealing with, yes. with, with, with beasts uh, who can be trained. Uh, yes, to, to, to they learn. cannot report verbally to you, but what they can do uh, behaviorally is much more elaborate than, than what a rat can do. Right. But at that point, we start seeing, you know, this paper was published again, it was sent to science, uh, two reviewers accepted, one said that he didn't accept it, science declined to publish. Right. We sent it to PLOS Biology, which was in the first number. And to this day, that paper is the 11th most cited uh, paper on PLOS Biology, you know, which is something very important sure. for us. Sure, sure. It shows that it's not where you publish, but it's what you publish, right. what I keep trying to tell my students right. for 30 years. Eventually. You know? Eventually, Eventually it is. <laughs> Eventually it's coming. But, but it shows also the, the idea that people can really triage what is good and what is bad that is not very straightforward. Right. You know? But basically at that point in 2003, we were recording 100 neurons. So in, in very quickly, we went from 12 to 26 to 46 and then 100. Right. Yeah. But then we established the paradigm. Uh, and in 2004, one year after, we had the first multi-electro recording paper and that was also re rejected in nature with 11 patients intraoperatively showing that the same algorithms that we had used a year before with the monkeys would work with humans. We could get patients in the operating room that were conscious, hmm. they are awake because the neurosurgeon, after penetrates the brain, there is no pain anymore, right. and the neurosurgeon may require the patient to help, uh, you know, in certain uh, maneuvers there. 
to locate certain parts of the brain. So the, 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 the physician, the, the surgeon is always asking what the patient is, uh, can report. Right. Um, we had uh, 10 minutes during the surgery to introduce a new electrode that actually was very beneficial for the surgery itself to record from about 50 neurons in, in the deep structures of these patients, 11 patients, and actually see if in real time we could get the same output of a one-dimensional game that they are playing right. uh, during the surgery. And we found the same thing. And we've reproduced that recently with 25 more patients uh, last year. And now we have a, a, a library of 46 patients recorded wow. uh, where we can see the same kind of physiological uh, findings that we saw in, in monkeys. But the funny part is, in the beginning, uh, nobody believed that this could happen. And we never thought in the beginning that this could become a tool for medical rehabilitation. Right. We're doing that for basic science. Sure, sure, sure. I, I want to get to that, and I want to get yes. to some of the applications. But let's just, before I move on to some of the theoretical yes. aspects that I want to ask you about, the, the, uh, so again, if I, if I don't know anything about this, I understand, yes. okay, there are these electrodes that are, that are planted in the brain in a distributed way, of yes. whether it's primate or whether it's rats, whatever, some entity or humans or, or, mm -hmm. or what have you. Um, they're recording all sorts of signals. Yes. I need to have a lot of um, processing power and very, very clever algorithms to be able to, to interpret those signals in, in a particular yes. way. And then from, um, tell me some of the more, the, uh, the more recent work that you did uh, on the primate side mm -hmm. of actually uh, w with, the, with the robot. So, yes. so we, we've, we've moved from the rats, so we're able to, uh, the first, the first set of experiments with the rats is getting a, a strong argument for these distributed, yes. dis distributed uh, processing, information processing. Then we move to uh, some way where we can actually capture the signals and get some clear evidence that uh, whether they're rats or whether they're primates, they're actually able to uh, physically affect some kind of device or mm -hmm. change or what have you. And then you move on to something even more uh, concrete and even more astounding, uh, at least to my, to my mind, which is actually being able to 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 have your is it idoya is that is that the name idoya idoya and this is a rhesus monkey a rhesus monkey yes um, and so so what happens there for again yes. for somebody who doesn't doesn't know sure. I mean, this is just a fascinating story yeah. well let me tell you just one thing before I forget that when we started people thought that given the nonlinearities that we have in the brain that people know about it there'll be the algorithm, the computational algorithm that we would have to use in real time to get this thing to work would be so complex that it would never work. Right, right. And the, another big surprise is that we did all this in the beginning, and it's still using very, it's very useful, with a linear algorithm. Huh. We use a multilinear regression analysis, right. a Wiener filter that is some, you know, people will know very right. easy. It's just multilinear right. regression. And it worked. And it worked because uh, we gave an X percent of uh, correct predictions for the brain, and the brain adapted itself to the limitations of the algorithm. It's almost like the brain was uh, our uh, supercomputer uh, dealing with the limitations of our algorithm. So to a point, these days, you know, a lot, for 10 years, people have put a lot of emphasis on trying to find the silver bullet algorithm to do a brain-machine interface. And it turns out that that's secondary. And it's secondary because you are, you are appealing to what the brain can do for you in terms of being plastic, meaning the brain, I like to use this metaphor, is the only orchestra that we know 
that changed the, its instruments as it produced the music that it's supposed to produce. Right. So the very music that the orchestra produced is actually shaping up new properties of this instrument. And by taking advantage of this in a very simple way, uh, we, didn't use, we didn't need to use time-consuming models or hmm. algorithms. We could use something that was computationally very efficient, optimal, and it could be uh, for the amount of data that we, we are collecting then and now, now even more, because we're recording 2,000 neurons simultaneously, uh, we can do that in the same window of time, a third of a second, that the brain normally uses to plan a motor behavior in the future. It's, it's funny, this, listening to you talk about the, the, the fact that you can actually use a linear algorithm. So this is a bit specialized or whatever, but, but it seems like the brain is actually able to, to fully encapsulate the nonlinearity. Yes. It's, it's, it's the brain that's sort of compensating on the nonlinearity to, side. And exactly. then you can use a linear yes. algorithm because you don't need to because the brain's taking care of the nonlinearity. Basically, if you give the brain, if you put random algorithms there, random uh, regression, it doesn't work. Yeah. So you need to give some... Uh, variance explained by, by the algorithm, right. you know, 30, 40 percent. Right. And the brain does the bump, the rest of the uh, job, so the thing would work. And it does that by changing its own physiological properties. That's right. what we documented. Right. Not, I, I want to get to the plasticity. Yeah, so, so uh, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but what happened was you're saying, uh, f after this first wave of papers, the everybody got into the upper limb brain machine interface uh, bus, right. you know? <laughs> and to this day, there are some people that continue to do the same paradigm without any change, you know? Right. But we, we decided that that's fine, but uh, here in the lab we have this tradition of trying to push the envelope and trying to see things that nobody would dare to go because too risky or right. too complicated. So we wanted first to see if we could generalize that to the lower limbs. And, uh, and actually, to this day, we're the only lab who did it. Right. So we went and uh, tried to see if we could put an animal walking bipedally, uh, like we walk. Uh, Rizzo's monkeys walk on, on all four. Right. But if you suspend the, the chest, if you give uh, support, they will walk bipedally on a treadmill, for instance. Right. And we saw that we could do the same thing. We could record from brain activity and predict the step cycle of these monkeys even better for the same number of neurons than we do for upper limbs. When we saw that, I, I met a, a, a phenomenal roboticist that was in Japan at the time, Gordon Ching, is an Australian uh, Chinese uh, roboticist who had just moved to Japan and was building with uh, an American company in Kyoto uh, at ETR Laboratories a humanoid robot. That was the state of the art of robotics at the time. Right. But it lacked one thing. Uh, Gordon wanted to get this uh, robot to walk autonomously. Right. But he didn't have a brain, of course. So we decided to do a crazy experiment in which we lend uh, uh, CB1, the name of the robot, a brain, a monkey brain. So we put these monkeys to walk here at Duke, and Gordon created for us a really high-speed internet connection that would allow the brain activity that we recorded in real time as the monkey walked to be sent to uh, Kyoto so that the CB1 could walk with, in, guided by the, those motor commands right. And at the same time, video footage of the walking could be sent back to Duke so that the monkey could see uh, uh, the walking. So the monkey gets a feedback. Yeah, it gets in a feedback. huge screen in front as it walking, right. gets these legs right. walking. Every time the robotic like touches the ground, the monkey gets a reward, right. a food reward, a, a piece of fruit or a little bit of juice. Right. And the monkey got conditioned 
to imagine this walking even after we turn off the treadmill. So even after the monkey stopped moving its own body, he was thinking about he it. He was thinking about how to get those legs moving in Kyoto. And there are several things that were fascinating. One was that we could get the robot walking for an hour without the monkey moving here, Duke, just by rewarding, you know. We also got that trip around the world faster than it takes for the actual potential to leave the monkey's head and reach the muscle of the monkey. It was just 20 milliseconds faster, but it was oh, faster. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And we got, of course, a 5-kilogram monkey to control at a 100-kilogram, 150-kilogram, 150-meter robot in Japan. But just by thinking, I mean, again, yes. it, it's, it's, it, this is the, the thing that has to be emphasized. It's one thing to, okay, you're a scientist and you're in a lab and I can see you're somehow mechanically controlling a robot over here. Yeah, you've got a high-speed internet connection and that's wonderful. Yes. But the idea that you're actually able to do it in such a way that after you turn the treadmill off, once the monkey's yes. been conditioned and the monkey's thinking about moving and the monkey realizes, gosh, if I keep thinking about moving, this thing keeps yes. moving and it yes. really is a thing that's moving over there. It is physically generating movement out of brainwaves. That's just know? fantastic. And that was the, the most relevant result of that study, that we showed that it could be done uh, it could be walking, it was not upper limb anymore, right. and it could be done across the planet very efficiently. Right. You know, so that we scale space. So from that point on, I, I like to say that the actuator uh, uh, doesn't need to be next to the subject that is controlling it by right. brain activity. It's showing off to put it in Japan. I mean, gosh, you could have put it around the corner. Yeah, no, like. uh, yes. <laughs> but since the first, you know, we have done this since the first monkey paper. Our first monkey paper in 2000, we had a robot arm in, at MIT at the same time that we're right. one here at Duke. Right. So we got both robots synchronized. So we could show that even with the delay of the internet, that we compensate for other things, right. uh, the robots could perform the same task no matter where they were. So the neuroscientists you know, didn't appreciate that very much, but the robotics community liked it very much I'm because sure. we're showing you know, the potential of right. teleoperation and uh, by, by brain control directly. And, and, and you're showing this wonderful, I, I've talked about this before with some other people, I'm, I'm skeptical of interdisciplinarity as, as something uh, imposed from without. Sometimes you have ah, this yeah. idea, you'll, you'll have a university administrator that says, and now we're all going to be interdisciplinary. Right. And we're going we're gonna to put a, a historian and a, and a neuroscientist yes. and, and, and an economist together, and wonderful things will necessarily happen. And, and, and very often, of course, nothing happens. Nothing they might happens. have a nice lunch or something, yes. but that's about it. It's true. But, but there is a natural interdisciplinarity that's associated with yeah. what it is that, that, that you're doing. Yeah, we joke in the lab that this is grassroots multidisciplinary research yeah. because we have a need for a roboticist. We go find one. We right. have an engineer, a mechanical engineer or electrical engineer, so our lab is formed by people from a lot of backgrounds. Right. Computer science, neuroscience, uh, psychologists, uh, physicists. And so we have a, a pre-multidisciplinary uh, approach by need. It right. was not imposed right. top-down. Right. From, from, the, from the research, grassroots, from, as you From say. the grassroots, yeah. yeah. And, and I think actually that created a perspective for us that is very difficult to mimic and very difficult to understand outside here. You know, so when I give these talks and I try to, to tell people, even in my colleagues, you know, in other departments, it's, sometimes it's even shocking because we have been trained, you know, for a long time to specialize on micro little questions. Right. Very fascinating. I love that. But uh, I was just talking to a physicist uh, two weeks ago at Cold Spring Harbor, right. uh, and we both agreed uh, reductionism is not going to explain the brain. 
So, so that's a perfect segue because because I, I kept pushing you off when you wanted to talk about localized versus distributive yes. and reductionist. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that. I have some questions. So I have a physics yes. background. So I have reductionism in my genes. Oh, of course, so it's, 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 it's because difficult. it works. It's, well, exactly because it because it works, uh, which doesn't necessarily imply that it works in all cases. And, and, yeah. and here's here's where we move to the brain. But let's let's state the problem first. Or let's let's try to state it as as, as best we can. So the old Physics way of thinking is you take the simplest possible models, yes. you look at things on a one-to-one -one level, and you just scale up, right? So, so you look at one particular atom, you look at maybe one particular molecule, you look at uh, what goes on underneath, and then everything else is just a collection of these particular yes. things. That's, that's oversimplifying things. There's all sorts of statistics that come into place, and of there's course. chaos theory, and there's all, all sorts of other things. But that, that, that basic mindset of looking at a one-to-one -one level, um, and we should really focus on the actual tiny individual particle and look at its properties and then from there we'll understand the, yes. the grand theoretical framework. And my understanding from reading your book is for the longest time that's the way a lot of biologists and neuroscientists were looking at things on a neuron level. Mm -hmm. We just look at the neuron, we look oh, very, yes. very carefully and this leads to this ideas of of everything being localized. You have a, uh, a, an X neuron in one part of your brain, you have another sort of thing which controls something else in another part of your brain, and there are particular types of neurons, and this is when you get these one-to-one -one maps and all that kind of yes. stuff, right? And, and, and you think something actually quite different than that. Uh, yeah, uh, in fact, I like to say in some of these talks that we, are, we biologists, neurobiologists, are victims of physics success. But not even the physicists, a lot of physicists don't realize that what you just said doesn't work for everything right. in nature. Right. So you can know everything about the molecules of my door, right. the atoms. You're never going to tell from the elementary properties of those atoms how that door is moving. Sure. That jump from one level to another cannot be done. You right. cannot, you know, in a very analytical way, predict the movements of three bodies interacting, let alone right. you know, billions Right. of uh, stars in the universe. That's embarrassing. We'd like to keep that under the rug. Yeah, but there, <laughs> yes, there's another, uh, f several f things that ha are kept under the rug because of the success of high energy physics. Yeah. And is the fact that most of the phenomena that we see around us are non-computable. Sure. Well, that's, that's, why we, that's why we promote high energy physicists, you see. That's why they're the poster boys. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, but the, I, I love high energy physics. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I, and I, I don't even pretend to understand it and not to understand the mathematics behind it, but when I learned that the standard model, one of the greatest achievements of mankind, is basically a high-degree polynomial that you add more degrees to fit the data, right. so you have to predict something else, right. because it's the nature of the beast of how you do the mathematics, it all came to me. And then I, I coined a phrase that I like to put in my next book, because uh, I, I got fascinated by, uh, for instance, Carl Sagan's... Uh, right. Cosmos uh, and so forth. Yeah, Cosmos, but even the, the other books, I always follow him. Right. And there was one of the books, I think it's Cosmos, that the phrase is like this. In the beginning, there was the universe, or there was the Big Bang, or there is physics. i actually trying to change that uh, for my own sake. Even physics depends on this primate brain. Physics may be the best way to describe the limits of the logic that this biology can produce. You see, oh, our, our, I see. I see where you're going here. So you're in the beginning, yeah, we, should, no. we should end with this because yeah. this, this could go off for hours. No, no, but this <laughs> is beautiful because this is what our research is literally bringing uh, right. float. So I would have to start this cosmos book like in the beginning there was a primate brain mm. because that's the way, that's the the constraint of all science that we do.
Because we can't get outside of our own system. We cannot get outside. I mean, the, when, uh, there's a famous debate that I love, that when Einstein got there were debating the equations of, I think, general relativity, mm. Einstein thought that that was the theory of everything. But Gado, I think it's Gado, goes to him and says, but you are not part of those equations. It cannot be. Mm. And it's true. His brain was not there. Right. Those equations could not explain how this thing works. And this thing, the way it works, generates the logic that allows us to do science and to create our best shot of explaining the, the, the universe. And, and, and believe it or not, I think this is intimately connected when we move to the question of moving from a localized to a distributed. Sure. Uh, no, I, I, see, I see how you do this. But let's talk, let's, I want to get back to sorry. this. Sorry, I, no, I, no, I couldn't no, miss no reason, that. There's no reason to be sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, but uh, I'll tell you why. The okay. debate of localized, right. why so difficult from moving to this engineering-based diagram of the brain where right. every part of the brain has a function. Which comes from phrenology. Phrenology. Level, it's the said, tradition right? of phrenology. There's, uh, the, there's the physics lump and there's, there's right. the worrying lump. There's the language lump that was very close to the area that uh, Broca identified as being responsible for language. Right. Um, it's very difficult because because of our tradition, because of the success of determinism and, and physics, we cannot imagine that most of what we do emerges as emergent properties of the system. Right. So, so let's talk a little bit about emergent properties, because here are the obvious questions. As, as I, uh, I can adopt the mantle of a reductionist, which, which of is spread in my bones, so I'm going to do anyway. But, uh, so, so a reductionist would say, okay, fine. We understand that there are different levels of Phenomenon. Yes. Uh, phenom phenomena. Yeah. Phenomena, yeah. Because we're plural. Anyway, plural different, yes. different things going on. Um, and some things can be described with one language. We have other things that can be described in another language. It's exactly. not necessarily the case that we can just make a smooth transition from one to the yes. other. But then, you, but then you have the obligation of saying, okay, something different is going on, different laws. What is your threshold? We can talk about emergence, but then you have to say, yes. well, you have a threshold. So you, uh, and you have to describe to some extent where that threshold is and how it's defined and what triggers Absolutely. it and all the rest yes. of that. So you've talked in your book about, okay, you don't go from a neuron, a neuron as the fundamental thinking unit. You go as populations of yes. neurons. Yes. So my question to you would be, well, what defines a population? How big does it have yes. to be? When do you know you've reached this critical path? And yes. what's going on to describe the critical emergent property yeah. that comes out? That, those are the questions that actually define our research program. When I open my talk in any university next week when I'm UPenn, that's the first slide of my talk. Okay. Is there was this guy uh, that I, you know, I have read a lot uh, uh, about uh, um, over the years, who suggested uh, Donald Hebb, by the way, a Canadian psychologist, who suggested that in '49, this was way before we could even do the experiments, right. that we should be looking at populations. And the first question that I put as my own question is, how many neurons? Right. Right? Uh, we know that some invertebrate brains c can work with a few hundred neurons and still produce behavior that is pretty well adapted. Right. Even that, if you go to a C. elegans brain, you know, uh, people have no idea how it works. Even with a couple hundred cells interacting, mm -hmm. uh, people are now realizing that it's also probably a distributed system. And people cannot predict how neurons are going to fire uh, in, a, in very simple behaviors, you know, not even right. talk about a monkey doing this. Right. So, but that's what motivated us. Exactly the questions you, you, you describe are the, 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 uh, the, the hypotheses that we make derived from these very questions. So how many neurons you need? Is it always the same neurons? Or if you have enough of a mass 
uh, neurons are just uh, exchangeable. You know, can be any neuron in that pool. Right. So, and that's what is coming about. And so, it seems to me, reading this, uh, that you've got you, you've got a couple of basic beliefs that fit together. You've yes. got the fact you've got distribution. Yes. You've got plasticity insofar as these things can actually change and evolve. It's not as if I have one neuron which is doing the same thing no. all the time and no. always has. It, the, the function actually changes, and then. My sense is, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that dist your two beliefs of distribution and plasticity somehow combine to get this brain-centered view as the brain is yes. evolving. So yes. Those two things and it's together. A, and it's the final item is a probabilistic view of the brain in the sense that since you have billions of elements, I see the brain, uh, the, the neurons, as probabilistic elements that can be exchangeable. And from this probabilistic cloud of activity, you come and generate deterministic behavior, which is something difficult for, for biologists to grasp. That you can get, you can ride a bike so precisely, or can you make a jump shot or score a soccer right, right, goal, right, uh, or miss, or miss <laughs> which is what happens with the Argentinians. The Brazilians usually score. Yeah. Uh, when the underlying mechanism that is generating that deterministic motor behavior, very fine and precise, is all probabilistic. And that's because of the numbers, presumably. It's just because yes. there's so much complexity that, yes. that, that's actually going on. But it's not, I'm guessing it's not inherently probabilistic. I mean, in the sense that it's, you have to take, see, this is my problem with probabilistic things yes. in general. And this is, again, my, my reductionist of disease, of course, yes. that I have. So, so there's, there's a sense that, Okay, if I wanna if I wanna measure the the pressure of a of a gas sure, or something, sure. right? That's probabilistic too. I've got yeah, molecules you've got a that are very zooming all over fixed the place. Number, yeah. Right, and so some of them are going here, and some yes. of them are going there. In principle, if I were God, I could actually tag all of these things, and I could get a sense. But the probabilistic arguments that I'm using are because I can't in practice do any of that stuff. Yes. So I have to I have to do that. Yes, but that's but, a good analogy actually. But what's actually happening here with all these things that are is it like that or is it somehow something a little bit different? Well, it, it, as I say it's like a voting system. Right. So you need to elect a, a president of the brain, right? You need to elect a behavior and usually you don't have a supreme court to do that for you, so you have right. to decide it. Right. in one round. Although apparently here you can go anyway. Yes. <laughs> but you have one round to decide it and you have one shot right. otherwise you may die. Right. So this system has to be optimal, right. resilient to lesion. So if you lose a few elements you need to be able to keep it. Right. So what we have in summary, summarizing 25 years of my work, what, and not only mine but work on many labs, what it seems to happen is that the, the brain has to achieve this goal. To achieve this goal it needs a certain mass of neurons to cooperate in a given moment in time to generate the motor program that will generate right. the behavior. Right. So it can achieve that by a huge number of uh, combinations of which neurons will get together at right. that point. In fact, the combination, the number is so gigantic that it may never repeat itself during the entire life of a subject. So if, uh, if I would, hmm. my prediction is if I would do this movement right here, the rest of my days, and the kinematics are the same. Right. The movement is identical, or right. the limit of my muscle, right. right? The combinations that I would record here that underlie this behavior will never repeat themselves. They're always going to be different. They're always going to be different, but the outcome is going to be the same. So in aggregate, there's, a, there's, a, there's an aggregate signal which is being produced somehow, yes, yes. which is the same. But the, the micro, on the micro level as to how it's being produced is going yes, to be different every exactly. time. Yes, exactly. And that's the reason a single neuron cannot be the functional unit of the brain. Because it's just a, a peon. 
right. uh, in the game of producing this, this, this behavior. Right. It's, in fact, it's just a, a mode, it's just a mechanism for, for producing the signal. It's the yes. signal that's everything. Yes, and, yes. And how it gets produced doesn't really the matter. The brain has so to achieve the goal, because right. the goal is, uh, is relevant for keeping that uh, subject alive, or to uh, you know, enhance its chances to survive. Right. And that has to be maintained at any cost. And in fact, that's the reason you may have so much redundancy. Because you may lose huge chunks of your, your brain and right. you still be able to realize that behavior. Right. And, yeah. and there's, there's something that you, you pointed out as well when you were talking about the monkey in, in, in your book. You were mentioning that there are some neurons um, when a monkey is doing a particular activity. I can't remember what it is, but it doesn't really matter. So the monkey is mm -hmm. doing a particular activity and you're monitoring the, the, the behavior on a neuron or yes. a group of neuron level and you say, okay, these neurons are firing and those... And then when the monkey is not actually physically doing that activity, but thinking about doing that activity, completely different neurons are actually yes. firing. Yes. And these neurons were not firing at all before. No. And, 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 and my sense from what you were writing, uh, or from what I gathered from what you were writing, is that that shows two things. It shows, first of all, again, this, this argument for distribution and different patterns of mm -hmm. neurons are doing things. But it also supports this notion of the plus. You might say, okay, the, the brain is plastic. The brain can evolve. The brain can do this. But one of the key points, it seems to me, that you're making is that one of the ways that it evolves evolutionarily is to be absorbing tools constantly. Yes. To be constantly expanding yes. and using this sense of adapting new tools and new techniques. And so these, these neurons that weren't firing before, they, they become part of the tool system apparatus as the brain evolves. Is that yes. a fair way yes. of... Yes, yes, yes. In fact, uh, our latest uh, uh, research uh, question, or our latest hypothesis that we are testing avidly in the labs here, is that the sense of self, this thing that is pretty unique to us and probably higher primates, right. is a, a belief or this feeling that we are unique, you know, an individual, is not only defined or doesn't end at the limit of the physical body that we inhabit, but includes every single tool that we normally utilize in our daily life. Right. You know, we, and we have very good evidence for that. Our lab and other labs have very good evidence for that because as you start using tools and becoming proficient, even a monkey becoming proficient in using tools, cells in your brain start responding to that tool. Right. And you start representing the properties of that tool inside your brain. But uh, we go a little farther, and that's what we're testing right now, that this sense of self also includes the social acquaintances that we make throughout life. So the people that are close to us, literally, as the song lyrics, uh, Frank Sinatra, Carl Porter's song said, you know, you, I got it, you under, under my, my skin. skin. Right, right. It's literally true that, that there are representations of our social acquaintances that are basically f um, merge with our sense of self. They're part of our sense of self. Our identity is associated to these social relationships. And that's the reason we are so uh, socially dependent. You know, that, that would explain why we're so avid for social contact and maintaining so social contact. So this gives contact. an evolutionary well, justification to some extent, a, a potential hypothesis. Yes, it's to, a hypothesis to, that we are actually testing. And to, to you know, there's to. some evidence that we're collecting now that we already have that suggests that that is, is really very likely. And uh, tools of all sorts. I mean, we talked yes. about on the social side, but one example that you give is, uh, which, which stands out in my mind because uh, I like to play tennis, but you mentioned, you mentioned Roger Federer yes. and, and having a tennis racket actually be an extension of, of himself to some oh, extent. Yeah. And we use these, these words metaphorically all the time. We say, oh, it's just as if the, the racket is part of his arm because we recognize that. But to some extent, that is actually what's going no, on. No, it's I mean, it on a is. Neurological oh, level, there are experiments. There are experiments showing that people play tennis for an hour 
a, you know, not a very poor player, but a player that is proficient. Right. And after an hour, you ask this person blindfolded to put the finger, the left, left let's say, the left uh, indicator, where the person thinks the other finger is, or at the hand or the right hand that play with the racket ends. Right. And invariably, the person puts the finger <laughs> where the racket should be. Right. So if you ask the person mentally to judge the midpoint of the arm right. after playing tennis, people will put the midpoint, take into account the racket. Right. You know, and then you'll get all sorts of subject reports on how people feel when they are very high performance athletes, you know, and, and I use the soccer ball too as a right, good right, example sure, because sure. that's what people report, right. that they feel, they don't feel the ball per se, right. they feel like it's the foot and right. the ball have become a hybrid, right. the good players, you know, they're, they're sure. very good players. And, and neurologically that's really what's going on to yes. some extent. Right? That's I mean, what we, the evidence that we have, we have a paper now about to be published where we clearly show that using avatars, when monkeys play with avatars of themselves right. and the avatar is doing something. Uh, we now have evidence that the avatar arm is a virtual arm, is a piece of code, uh, is becoming embedded in the body representation that the brain carries of that subject. So the animal actually acquires cells hmm. that are responding to the avatar arm in addition to the regular arm of the animal. Wow. And so uh, the hypothesis is that we, as part of our evolutionary makeup and as part of our evolutionary drive, our brain is constantly, it's not just plastic in the sense that it can be here, it can be there, yes. it can do all the rest of this, but it's, it's part of the evolutionary trend is to be absorbing these things constantly, yes. to be changing and absorbing and assimilating and yes. adapting. Another example, phone, yeah. uh, phones, smartphones. Right. Uh, how many years we have smartphones? In, um, barely two decades, less than two decades, sure. right? Uh, that we are using not only for calls and... Oh, even less, I would say. Less, yeah. a decade. Yeah. They have become so part of our culture that people have withdrawal syndrome right. if they're not using their phone. Right. I mean, heavy no. users report, look, uh, if an alien would come to Earth, it would report back to the planet. The most common behavior of these people is to look at their hands, you know? I, I hear you. I've, I've, uh, I've, I was in that world for quite some time. So, yeah. Uh, no, I, it's all definitely, yeah, yeah but, but that can only happen if your brain is adapting so quick and any technological advance that we have that even the, wor the works of your brain uh, are mimicking some of the steps that you know, the machines are uh, uh, right. creating. Right, so it's become a part of you to some, yeah. some so non-trivial extent. All sorts of studies on, on how kids' uh, brains behave these days about, because the internet right. clearly show uh, that the way we surf the internet is shaping up the way our brains uh, operate. Right, and to some extent the way we do anything is yeah. going to, I mean, that, that, that's, that's really the yeah, point. Yeah, the introduction of radio, Oh, the introduction of books, radio, TV, and then the internet. These, these are going to be known in a few centuries as key landmarks on shaping human brain evolution. Hmm. I mean, let me ask you about phantom pain. Because yes. You talked about this as well. And I think this yeah. also gives, you, gives, gives some sense. You're looking okay. for your watch? Or no, 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 no. I, I got <laughs> tangled in the cable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, this notion of, again, the brain imposing its structure yes. somehow. It seems like it's related. So, I mean, the, the, most people are familiar, uh, certainly before I uh, read your book, I had some sense of, of this weird notion of phantom pain. Somebody has had their leg amputated, yes. and, they, and, and years after, or days after, it doesn't matter, after they've had their leg amputated, they feel pain, and non-trivial amounts of pain sometimes in, in, in an amputated limb. And so uh, there's, 
there's a hypothesis, there, there's a set of hypotheses by which we might be able to understand this better linked to some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I'm now over to you. To yeah, give, give well, it used to be, you know, phantom pain is one of my favorite subjects. We could talk for hours here because it is, it has been reported in the literature since the medieval ages. You know, and right. ancient civilizations knew all about that. But in, in Europe, uh, in the battlefields, that was very common because, of course, you had sure. these traumatic amputations. Sure. And, People and like this, Napoleon contributed yeah, a lot to that. Yeah, a lot of that. Yeah. And, but even before, sure. uh, and this physician, Ambrose Paré, uh, was afraid of reporting it in Latin, in the current language of science at that time, because he thought that people would think that it was nuts, crazy. Right. It's the same so, publishing problem all over again. All over again. <laughs> so he published a book in French, right. uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, describing you know, and actually in America, the the name Phantom Pain was coined during the Civil War. You know, during you know, right, a sure. physician from Philadelphia, uh, after Gettysburg battle, realized three days later that these uh, both Union and Confederate uh, soldiers that had been uh, suffered amputations were reporting not only pain but the sensation that they are climbing the hill all over again uh -huh. in Gettysburg. I mean, they're in beds and they had the sensation of running. Huh. So. For a long time, people thought, and the main theories of the 20th century until the 50s, was that uh, phantom pain came for something peripheral. So the lesion of the nerves, or the connective tissue, the scar tissue that builds up would stimulate these nerves, neuromas. Right, make it seem like, like the, uh, uh, the nerves. Again, right. because our theory of the brain was the brain is decoding something from the world. Right. right. Passively just Passively, getting, letting signals come to hit signals, it. And, oh, to this day, if you open any textbook here, you're going to see that. We see scenes, we break the scenes in features, and then the features go to each part of the brain, and then somehow, magically, they come together and we see. There's no time for that. You, you couldn't survive a lion coming in the savanna and trying to eat your life because there's no time to break in the scene and doing. But phantom pain uh, gave us the first hint that something didn't match that theory. And there was you know, uh, a series of studies in the 50s and 60s, uh, for instance, people being born with no limbs and reporting phantom sensation. Right, so there people goes your scar tissue Yes, exactly, right over. People didn't believe in those results, so it's a big fight. Um, but uh, interesting enough, if you now change the framework and you put the brain at the center mm -hmm. of, of, the, of the picture, uh, a brain-centric view, as you said, uh, you find a completely different explanation for phantom limb and the, uh, pain. And that is, uh, the brain has an internal model of the body. It has developed that over the years and is used to, and it has ingrained that in your memories that your body has two uh, upper limbs, two lower limbs, ten digits, ten toes. If suddenly, and the brain is continuously testing that hypothesis. It's continuously verifying that hypothesis because you touch things, you get things, you right. walk. Right. But suddenly, you lose part of it. The brain has an internal model that now is mismatched by the periphery. And is the mismatch that generates the illusion that you have still a part of yourself that has disappeared. So the brain thinks somehow that the brain is imposing the, the fact brain that you have legs active, regardless of whether or not you, the ha you brain, actually have legs. The brain uh, is the true creator of everything for us, uh, including, as I said at that point, our myths of where we came about, uh, where we come from. Right. Uh, I want to get to that at the end. We'll get at the end, but uh, I keep provoking you. But, <laughs> but uh, in the phantom limb sensation, and 
And there is something equivalent that is as scary. And for me, as a medical student, I, I actually wrote in the book uh, my first experience with this, is if you have a lesion on the posterior parietal cortex on the right hemisphere, a big lesion, or even a transient lesion, the left half of your body and the universe disappears. So people uh, cannot, it's called uh, hemineglect syndrome. So the, the person neglects the left part right. of, of the universe. So I saw this in a patient at University of Sao Paulo when I was a kid, 22 years old. Uh, the test for this patient was the following. He, he had to walk in a, a hall in the neurology ward, and, and he had to turn left to go to the men's room. Right. And we told him, go, find the men's room, and get in there. So he went all the way to the end of the hall, turned back, came back, and turned right to get to the men's room because he left this didn't country. exist. Huh. So even though he had the awareness that there was a men's room on the left part of the, of the universe, he had to go to the end of the hall to come back and to walk in there. So he was conscious of where it was, but the brain somehow imposed this... this that it didn't exist. And, and <laughs> he would dress his pajamas only on the right side. We had to dress him on the left because he would say that... that we put his left arm in front of his eyes and said, that's not my arm. It belongs this, to someone else. Wasn't this thing about an astronaut as well that you mentioned? Yeah, that there, there was, some was a guy who came here. That was uh, even better. The, this astronaut came give a talk here, Duke, many years ago. Yeah. Uh, in the 90s, and uh, he told me that in one of his missions, the, the commander, the pilot, had a left hemineglect syndrome, and in the middle of the, you know, you're taking off, you're going up there, the guy says, oh, guys, we have a little problem, I cannot find my left arm, <laughs> <laughs> or something of that effect. Says, oh, who is this left arm, in, you know, in the dashboard? Everybody look at each other, you know, you don't want to have a pilot in a shuttle that doesn't know that the left arm is his. I don't want to have a pilot on a normal plane that yeah, doesn't yes. <laughs> But it was transient. It was probably because of the gravity. Right. You may have a, anoxia, you know, some uh, temporary, right. you know, hyperperfusion of the right hemisphere. It came back, and so he was fine. But all these phenomena gave us hints, you know, the, the brain is actively creating reality. And... And it's not passively decoding anything. So, and that's one of the reasons I suggest, because of two things you said, of the evolutionary history mm. that generates the plasticity and the assimilation of tools that you cannot predict. is a pseudo-random walk. Right. And the personal history of each one of us that generates this internal model, none of them are computable. So to think that you would be able to reproduce that in a Turing machine, in a regular computer, it's ludicrous. Right. You simply cannot do that. Because it's, it's contingent on history. It's, it's contingent on history, and neither historical process can be replicated, uh, replicated in an algorithm, right. in a Turing tape, right. so in a sequential series of steps. You know? so, but these two things create an internal uh, uh, history, an internal model that imposes on our senses. Uh, so I like to say that we, we, we see before we watch. So if you tell me, look, like if something is happening behind my back, before I even look, my brain is already creating a hypothesis because it knows this room, it knows what is behind me, uh, and is trying to create a, a hypothesis before I even take any data from the environment. So again, it's imposing on, yes. on the world rather than yes. just receiving. Yes. It's this notion of imposition. Yes, yes. For, for those who like philosophy, it's can't to the limit. <laughs> Uh, it would be a good point to end, but I have more things to say. Yeah. <laughs> to say. Um, uh, let me be devil's advocate for a moment. Of course. On, on the distributed. You've given me all sorts of evidence to believe that 
uh, information is processed in a distributive way in the brain. Yes. And I don't have these one-to-one -one maps. But hey, uh, I do know that the brain is at least in uh, grossly, roughly, yes mapped out in different areas. You yes. mentioned before about the motor cortex sure. and the, the tactile cortex. I mean, there are different parts of the brain that are used for different things. Yes. So, so if I'm listening to this and I say, okay, Nicolaelis is saying all this stuff is distributed, but at the same time, I know that there are certain regions in the brain of course. Where, where stuff happens. So how can that square with your, your ideas? Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not homogeneous. It's not distributed homogeneously all over. And so during development, some areas of the brain receive input from the periphery of some sensory organs. And for instance, back here, you receive mainly visual. Uh, up uh, here, you auditory, tactile. Of course, this is, this is how the brain is put together. There is a scaffolding of uh, axons that uh, shape up the functional distribution of these signals. Right. Yet, uh, we now know that if I blindfold you for a few minutes, normal subject, no problem, no visual problems. See, I'm a little bit scared when you say that because you actually have a lab. So when you say yeah, this, so say, I can do hey, it. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> but if you put a, a blindfold yeah. in a few minutes, I'll detect tactile responses in the visual cortex, not things that can be created de novo just since really? since I put your blindfold because there's no time for genes to be expressed, yeah, sure, sure, sure. proteins to be processed. So we have evidence in animals that even in the primary fields that we all know, visual, visual, auditory, tactile. Even these fields can respond to other sensory modalities. So there is a specialization on top of a broad uh, background of multisensory processing going on there. Hmm. That's how I answered that. And in fact, uh, the other thing I was expecting to ask me is that, oh, well, we know that if we lesion this part of the brain, right. people go aphasic. Right. That's the classic right. uh, deniability hypothesis of the localization, right? right? Well, we now know that to get that effect, as Broca saw that the famous physician, French physician, who had one patient in, in the end of the 19th century and put this forward, for that to happen, you have to destroy the underlying axons, the fibers that are crossing. And these fibers connect many parts of the brain. So, so you're isolating it by, by yes. cutting out the connections. You're cutting, you're cutting out the circuit. Right. So if you have lesions of the gray area only, only the neurons, you can lesion a lot, a huge chunk, and you are not going to see symptoms. That's very common in superficial strokes. Because the connections are still there. The connections are still there. So you need the, the grid. Right. You need this grid. It's pretty much like the internet. Right. If you, if you take uh, a few peripheral servers out, That's fine. nothing happens. Right. Now, if you take Google out, all the servers that Google has, the internet will feel the effect yeah. because it's a massive disconnection right. of a, a key hub in there. So we still can explain, we still can maintain the distributed hypothesis pretty much alive, even though, you know, classically, uh, these examples have been used to suggest that there's a, uh, a localization of function. There is a degree of specialization, no doubt about it, of course. But it's not as strict as we were taught to right. believe, and it's not phrenology, not by a long shot. Right. It's it, certainly not one-to-one -one or no, any of that sort of no, silliness. No, yes. Sorry, I didn't mean silliness. No, no, that's, I, that's, no, no, that's, that's a, <laughs> I understand, yes. So, but it's still, it's still a tough debate. It's still, there's a, particularly in the visual community, it's very difficult. Mm. Uh, because every time you find some extra visual effect in the visual cortex, people get very nervous and they, they really think that it's something else. But the evidence is growing so much. A point, a point to, to mention, we can find visually driven neurons in the tactile cortex.
in the motor cortex. So hmm. it's not just here. And that I think many, many people would agree right now. Okay. Let me get to something that I know a lot of uh, people who may not even be all that interested in neuroscience. I don't see why. And, mm -hmm. and frankly, they shouldn't be watching. But, but anyway, yes. maybe, maybe there are some people out there. Um, but they are still fascinated by this idea of some of the technologies and what can be done. We talked, it's, yes. all, it's all very well and good, uh, Miguel, that you can get monkeys to, we can pick up their thoughts as they move stuff around. But how is this relevant to us? What sort of technologies can we have to help people who, who, have, uh, who have serious impairments, who, who are quadriplegic, who, who may have Parkinson's, and all the rest of that? So um, uh, fortunately, even those, those one or two people who may be watching this who are not passionately uh, curious about mm -hmm. neuroscience uh, also are able to be sated, have yes. their curiosity sated. So tell us, tell us more about that. Yeah, I think in the short run, in the next few years, uh, the main impact of this thing that we call brain-machine interface, this paradigm that we have been talking about, uh, will be in medical rehabilitation. No doubt about it. So for patients that are paralyzed, right. uh, first ones, uh, will benefit from this possibility of bypassing the lesion and using brain activity to control prosthetic devices of a huge variety. You know, single limb, lower limb, whole body, upper limb, there is now a huge diversity of potential devices, even for communication. People that cannot communicate, right. they will be able to use the brain activity to communicate. That, that, and, and it's not only paralysis. I mean, we are working here in the lab with a prosthetic device for Parkinson's disease that take advantage of, of the basic science that we discuss, of this new model of the brain. It should never work if the brain operates on the classical uh, model, right. but because of this view of the brain, we created a, a prosthetic that used the spinal cord, uh, the surface of the spinal cord, to send an electrical signal to the brain to desynchronize, to get neurons that are firing together during Parkinson's disease, like an epileptic seizure. In well, fact, is that what Parkinson's? I don't uh, actually know. Well, what it's a new concept, but that's okay. what I believe it is. I okay. think uh, Parkinson is uh, manifests itself from a neurophysiological point of view as a seizure, as neurons firing rhythmically together. And too much order in the brain is pathological. So you're trying to decouple this? I decouple the neurons. I make them out of phase by sending a desynchronizing signal from the spinal cord. Cool. If, if the brain works as we read in textbooks, this should not work at all. Right. It had no effect whatsoever. But in both animals, animal models, rat, mice, and monkeys, and now in about 18 patients around the world, the thing has proved to be very, very useful. Uh, there are other prosthetic devices to restore vision, uh, sense of touch. So that's medicine. That's rehabilitation medicine. And that's where you're going to see the impact very quickly. Right. I truly believe that we are going to see other waves of brain-machine interfaces, not only for patients with neurological disorders or psychiatric disorders. Uh, we will see this technology advance using non-invasive methods, so no sensors that you put inside the brain, but from outside, mm -hmm. that will allow us to have a complete different experience interacting with our computers in anything that is digitally controlled. So I think in a couple of decades, very likely, we will be part of our desktops or our laptops or iPads, whatever. We will be part of the operating system in the sense that we are going to interact by thinking with icons, with uh, applications, with all sorts of, and we'll get feedback. Right. Uh, so we are going to assimilate the operating system so it's this notion, again, of using what's around us more concretely as a tool. Yes. 
uh, having looking at it from a brain-driven perspective where the brain yes. is actually imposing on the world. And also your book is called, or, or your last book, because you, you mentioned yes. I'm going to ask you later that you're writing another yes. book, but your previous book was called Beyond Boundaries. Yes. And frequently there's this invocation of, of the, the human body as, as, a, as a limit, almost an arbitrary limit that yes. we now are at the level of going beyond. So what I got is that, the, okay, the boundary is actually our physical being as opposed yes. to our brain. And so we, we're able to go beyond that in all sorts of different ways now. That's what the definition of sense of self was, right. that the limit was here at the last layer of the epithelium, right? Uh, I think the brain never cared about that. We cared, you know, because we had this feeling that, you know, this, this is the limit of myself right. and with what distinguishes me from you. But uh, uh, that's exactly the point. Uh, now, what I, what I want to, I want to stretch this concept in this right. new book by trying to say that everything that surrounds us is created by the brain. The very notion of reality that we live, this whole world, the political economic system, our social relationships, our prejudices, our, our religion, everything that we claim to be tangible reality is this imposure that comes from, from within our brains to outside. Okay, so here now I can fight with you a little bit about this, because you, you, yes. you mentioned this a couple of times and I kept holding you back. Yes. So now, um, so I'm not sure what the claim is. Is the claim, when, when you talked about rewriting Carl Sagan in the beginning was yes. the brain instead of in the beginning yes. was the cosmos, is the claim that, um, that uh, there is no objective independent reality outside of the human uh, brain and that everything is somehow created as a necessary first step through the brain, or is it that the only way we can get access to it, the only way we can even yes. talk meaningfully about it, is by first recognizing that it's a brain-centered perspective? Because yes. the second way I'm, I'm okay No, it's with. the second way. Okay, then I'm... It's the second one, but it's <laughs> the best way we have to reach this truth. Right. It's well, not the final... It's the only way, it's the, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the only way, but there is no final truth. We really, we are, I, I mean, physicists like to say that our, our limit to understand the universe is the speed of the light because there's a, a sphere around us of time, right? right? Since right. light has a... Sure, there's a light barrier. There's a light barrier, right? right? We cannot see beyond right. that the barrier because light will never get to us, right. right? And also there is a limit since before the creation of photons, right? If you don't have photons, you don't have transmission of sure. information, so you, you cannot see it. Right. I'm putting another barrier. And the barrier is the biology of uh, this kind of brain that gives us one potential view of this reality. It's the best we can do. And science is probably the best we can do within that sphere. Uh, but, uh, but the reality is there. there. I mean, no, there is I'm, a reality, of if course. If I'm an alien, if, well, there are people who, who, who think differently. No, no, but, 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 no, no I, I'm going to give this example and you'll see what I mean. Okay. If, if another brain would show up, right, from a different civilization, a different, uh, you know, society right. that evolved based on a different type of biology and created a central nervous system that is very different from right. us, I, my contention would be that the explanation that they would provide for the universe would be different than ours. Right. Even their scientists would have a different explanation. Okay. So, but, so I mean... But there, there is an explanation no, out there. Still. There is. Or there's something out there. There is. No, no, of course, of course. But that, that's the best we can do. And I'll sure. explain why. Because okay. when I... When I look at the world, when I touch the world, there are no concepts out there. There is information. We create concepts. Our brain creates concepts. The concept of the proton, neutron, star is a concept that a human brain created based on the evidence that it collected. So these concepts not necessarily are universal. It depends on the biology of our brains. 
And in fact, uh, some of the physicists may have touched on the limits of our biology, like Gadot, the mm. his theorem is probably the limit of our logic, right? Mm. And that explains sure. that our biology cannot definitively prove that something is true, even though it's true, right, in a, in a closed system. Right. Mathematics, in fact, is even more interesting in that respect. Uh, that takes us on a further yeah, note, because one can talk about the objective reality of, of, uh, of protons and neutrons and, and how alien life might interpret that or might not exactly, interpret that. Exactly, exactly. But one can also talk about uh, mathematical truths and the incompleteness theorem and all of yes. that stuff. Yes, but, no, but what, I, I, what I like about the beauty of this, for me, from an intellectual point of view, is right. that it's possible to make this connection. Right. Finally, right. Right. we may be talking to physicists and chemists and mathematicians right. uh, about their world that they love in ours, that is the brain, and actually find a subject that is interesting for both sides. Absolutely. Yeah, because there is no theory of everything. What I love about this is when I read Stephen Hawking's a few years ago, his first big book. Uh, the Brief History of Time. The Brief History of Time. Yes. He was there in the first page, we are going to have the theory of everything in a few years. His last page book says it's impossible. Yeah, he's not the only one who uh, yeah. had that little development as well. Yes, yes. No, no, I know, but there are the many. But sure. in my lifetime, sure. as a scientist, a professional scientist, I'm not even a, in the field, I have seen this. Sure. And from a neurobiological point of view, uh, I can actually relate to it. Right. You know, and that's what I find intellectually uh, very satisfying, very, right. very exciting. You know, right. It's a good time to be alive doing neurobiology. Right. <laughs> okay, let, me, let me take the dark side of this okay. if, I'm, if, I'm on the, if I'm listening to... Remember, to I'm this. Brazilian. The, the glass is always half full. Okay, no, yes. that's, that's, that's fine. But I'm not even suggesting you should play this role. Okay. I'm not even doing it, but I'm just I'm being... I'm, uh, somebody's, I'm listening to this and I see, okay, this Nicolaelis guy, he's able to do, make all sorts of wonderful machines. Uh, that are able to help people who have difficulties because we, we're now able to re read, uh, be able to process information, yes. read brain waves, and so forth, however one wants to describe it. Um, but there's something we didn't talk about, which is this brain-to-brain -brain, yes. uh, interface where you're, it, it can actually go the other way. We can talk about imposing uh, signals. So if I'm a science fiction-oriented individual yes. and, I'm, and I'm worried about uh, things because I'm, maybe I've watched too many science fiction movies or, or, or whatever, I'm thinking, my gosh, uh, what are the negative things that could come out of this? Somebody might actually be able to have some kind of a brain ray that they, yes. could, they, could, they could force me to think different thoughts or they could, they could read my thoughts. It's or called TV. <laughs> <laughs> but but in your book you mentioned something scarily, eerily similar to this with this, this guy, uh, the Spanish guy, Rodriguez. Oh, uh, oh. Uh, with, with no, no, uh, I know what you're talking about. I'm, I'm, I can't I, remember his name. No, uh, yeah, he just passed away, uh, oh, in fact, okay. last year. Uh, I know. He, yeah. But there's this guy with a, with a, uh, what looks like a radio-controlled device, and a yes, bull comes a bowl. roaring, roaring yes, at him. Sure. And he's it's able to press this, press this uh, button, and all of a sudden the bull becomes pacified. And, and might it be possible for us to be able to develop something like that for humans yeah. as well, yes. so that if I'm... Uh, Delgado, how could I believe this? Don't show that, this is embarrassing. I forgot no, no, his no. name, he's one of my heroes. Yeah, Delgado. Here, the bull. Oh. Yeah, that's it. That's, yeah. that, that's the yes. well, I'm trying to think of how we can edit this in a way where you, you shouldn't say that's embarrassing, don't show that. You see, you should just say, but of course, it's Delgado. Yeah, Dr. Delgado, yeah. yes. Yes, Dr. Delgado, yes. <laughs> no, no, I, sometimes I block names. It's, it's a kind of a dyslexia that I have. 
But could it be that, that uh, I mean, you're talking about all these wonderful things. You're, you're developing aids to help people. Yes. We're talking. But do you know the motivation of the brain-to-brain -brain experiment? Do you know why we did it? The motivation was to see if we could make the second brain representation, the somatosensory cortex, tactile cortex, mm -hmm. to assimilate the whiskers of the first animal. So we will have an animal that has now a representation of its own body right. plus the body of its companion. So it's, again, it's beyond boundaries. Beyond, yes, and the sense rats don't have a sense of self that we can speak of, apparently. Um, who, who knows? Who knows, exactly. Right. Uh, There's a debate, but I don't even get into that. But in any event, we show the plasticity so uh, avid of uh, assimilator that it can actually, over a month, create a representation in one animal of the tactile sensor array of another animal. Right. That's the final picture of that paper, and it's the most important result. Nobody pay attention to it, you know, but that's fine. Uh, sure, we wanted to show the concept, right. and, and I have to point it out that science fiction has already done it. Arthur Clarke, if you read 3001, uh, his last book of the uh, Odyssey, right. Space Odyssey series. I didn't know that until six months ago when someone gave me the book. <laughs> the whole topic of the last book of the Space Odyssey is uh, this civilization that developed uh, us a thousand years from now, uh, uh, brain caps that allowed them to communicate and acquire knowledge. Okay? So there is nothing in anything that we have done that is even close to that idea, uh, particularly allowing you to learn Latin just by receiving signals right. in your brain. There's no way nobody will do that that I can imagine right now. Right. Even Delgado's scary scenario, which for which he paid a pretty heavy price, even though he, he didn't do anything but this bull thing. Right, you mentioned he was ostracized. Oh, he was ostracized, and he was kicked out of this uh, Yale and had to leave the country, even though he got a, a king of Spain Institute in Madrid. He lives pretty well there. But then he retired, came back to, to the United States. But uh, that is nothing. That's just to stop a movement. You know, nobody that I know can use any technology remotely linked to this to control anybody's behavior. Okay. You know? but you, you, so you, you wouldn't worry about a thin edge of the wedge thing? Or, not or now. Like not really now. Sure, you can always think that there must be some, you know, right. crazy lunatic thinking about how to take advantage of it for the bad way because that's for everything. That's, and that's, that's what they, I mean, that's science, right? Science, is, science. is to develop, is yeah, to learn. Our job is to develop things, ideas, notions. The, the society's job is to regulate what will be used and what will not. You right. know, I cannot decide, and not, I cannot even, I have my own opinion, but uh, how people are going to use this technology is different. I, as I said, I see that from the bright side. I see that one day we'll have uh, one of us, uh, or one of our grandchildren will have a stroke, and instead of remaining aphasic for the rest of uh, his or her days, we'll have a bypass. They communicate the right hemisphere to the left, and that person will be able to rehabilitate its lack of you know, the Broca area and other cortical areas in the left hemisphere due to the massive stroke, and we'll speak again. We'll be able to communicate. Right. That's what I'm aiming at. Uh, but of course, any piece of technology can be used, you know, for, for Ill, terrible, well. terrible sure. uh, outcomes. You know, look at a soccer ball has been done by the men's U.S. team here. You know, soccer ball should be delicate, caressed, and passed, and... <laughs> You know, and look at the tragedy that the ball has to endure. Every I haven't day. even asked you about something, and you, you yeah. keep you keep imposing it. Your love of so I know I know you you, you have to go. Let me yes. just ask you if sure. I if I may just just a couple couple yes. more questions. Sure. 
Um, you're obviously a very passionate individual. Uh, you've dedicated your life to science. You've, you've clearly done great things. Thank you. If you were in the situation where you would, you would be face-to-face uh, -face with somebody who had all the answers, you could ask a couple of questions about uh, how, things, how things work, whether it's God or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Um, and forgetting for the moment that this is all part of your brain imposing My on, high school on, on principal. <laughs> but you, you, you clearly have questions. There are questions and mysteries and things that you want to learn about that you're still uh, chomping at the bit to discover. What would be the key, some of the key things that you would ask? If I was an omniscient being mm -hmm. and I could tell you the answers without any hesitation to some of your questions, what would be some of the driving questions that you would ask? Well, right some, now? some of the ones that we just touched base here, you know, what is the number? Right. How many neurons? How many makes a group? Yeah, of, of yes. What is what unit? is the minimum? What is the minimum number? Why this way? Right. You know, uh, how does it feel to use an avatar to touch a virtual surface and be able to tell what it is? How, what do you feel? I mean, our monkeys cannot tell us, but they are literally using a virtual arm to touch a virtual object, and they can right. distinguish them based on the virtual texture of that surface. You know, so. I think this would be the questions, and the ultimate question for me would be uh, give us a little more time to answer it. I don't want the answers. I want just you know the pathway to find them. You know, I think that's the most. I think science is about that. I don't worry about the fact that we may never touch the truth because invariably the truth will never be found anyway. Uh, what I what I want is the opportunity to pursue it. You know, that's, I think, what the right scientific mission is, is this, is this journey right. towards this, this elusive truth that matters. Thank you very much. Is there one, anything else that, uh, that you'd like to say that I haven't asked you, we haven't no, talked no, about? No, no, I think we've talked anything? about uh, pretty much a, everything. It was a pleasure, Miguel. Oh, thank likewise, thank you. It was a lot thank of fun. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Neuroscience, along with separate discussions with John Duncan, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Kalanit Grill Spector, and Jennifer Grow. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.